this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, we had a new subscriber actually at the Dig Me Out Union. His name is Mr. John Nall. Welcome, John, to the union. Very happy to have you with us. Um, Appreciate your support. In addition to this to this new member, we this is a very Patreon uh, centric episode because we have one of our patrons with us. He's back. He's been here before. We did last year. It's out. It's every March. I was looking at the dates. It's March every year. That's how it works. You come back at the same time every year. So usually, well, let's say last March was a little different. <laughs> Things were happening then. There was a basketball tournament. There was uh, right. There was there was spring training. <laughs> there was things going on. But we're consistent in that we're welcoming back to the show Mr. Josh Ballard. Welcome back, Josh. Hello, and thank you very much for having me on uh, once again here. I'm uh, pretty excited for this one. Yeah, we are too because you bring us, I would say, albums that are outside of what we normally cover and they're in you know we did skinny puppy two years ago mm-hmm. it was our yep. first i is that would is that ebm that's well that particular album was definitely not but they've been in the ebm territory in the past okay. uh this one coming up here is much more they're much more associated with ebm though gotcha and then last year we did Nightwish. We had not done any symphonic metal. So that was yeah. fun. Jay and I were familiar with it. Jay more a little bit more than I was. But again, opened up a, a new uh, avenue for us to explore. And I was looking back through um, what we have done in terms of any sort of electronic music. And it's been pretty sparse. I mean, we've done 400 and this will be our 481st episode. And I can only figure out, you know, connected to electronic in some way like six episodes seven episodes over the past 10 years so it's good because and a lot of those have been in the last couple years so we're definitely starting to explore a little bit more uh outside of just alternative and indie rock which is fun because there's obviously a lot to cover always makes me laugh when people go haven't you covered everything already and i'm (laughs) i just chuckle at that no we haven't (laughs) we have not covered everything so let's not uh let's not hold on to the the secret too long josh tell everyone the album that you picked for this episode all right the album i picked for this one is um from the british not german as the name would have you believe but british um industrial slash uh, electronic body music that's the ebm we referenced earlier um the ele- industrial slash ebm act uh, nights are ebb and this is their 1991 album ebhead i'm glad you pronounced it first 
because I have been saying Nitzer Ab since 1991, probably. <laughs> Don't worry, I did the same thing until I stumbled upon some interviews of theirs online. So how did you discover them? That was um, part of my journey of discovery through the whole kind of the whole world of industrial, which, you know, as a kid, I was obsessed with Nine Inch Nails. I think like the closer video is kind of what got me started on this. And then eventually, once I got online, I started learning more about Skinny Puppy. And then from there, through a lot of the other seminal acts in that whole subculture. And Knights of Reb are one of the main groups associated with EBM, which um, EBM is kind of the more dancey side of industrial, if you will. Um, they're best known for That Total Age, which was their first commercially released album and usually considered their best. Um, and this one is kind of a, it tends to be kind of a forgotten one in their catalog, which is part of why I picked it, because I think there's a good amount to talk about here and I find it uh, pretty underrated. Jay, had you heard of or listened to any Nights Reb? Uh, I'd heard of, but never heard. Gotcha. I I feel like I I knew this album cover when I saw when I saw it in researching for the record and going to Spotify and starting to listen to it. I was like, I know that album cover. Maybe it was because of being at the radio station. There's probably a poster in in the early years when I was there because I started in '92 and this came out in late '91. So their, their poster could probably have been there from the previous year. And then also I think maybe there might have been, you know, there could have been a CD in the store that I, while I was going through the Nirvana section, I might have <laughs> gone through the Knights or Ebb section without uh, realizing what I was looking at. But I don't remember really listening to anything off of this record. I know that there was a record, um, I don't want to, it wasn't Big Hit, but there was a record later on in the, Maybe it was, but there was, there was something we played at the radio station. I know that. Yeah, because Big Hit was their last album before they um, broke up. Maybe it was Big Hit. In the 90s. Maybe it was. I'm trying to, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at our playlists to uh, <laughs> to really remember. So let's talk a little bit about this record and the, and the history of Knights of Reb. History of the band. So the band, as you mentioned... Not a German band. They're from the UK, from England. Who are the main guys in the band in terms of the the long-standing members? Josh, do you know? Um, well, the lead singer's name is Douglas McCarthy. Um, he's obviously the front and center there. And then Bon Harris is the other... Uh, most consistent member, most well-known one, one of the founding members. He's like, if you've seen any of their videos from this album in particular, he's the kind of ripped bald guy. Gotcha. <laughs> and he's like the drummer, basically. And then they've had a few, kind of a couple other members rotate over time. But those have been the two most consistent ones. Now, when you say drummer, are they playing like an electric kit or is there um, a lot of programming going on? There's there's like drum machines in some of the tracks, but they also do play live drums at their concerts. Interesting. Okay. So there is a mix, and I think because that's what he is credited as is drummer a drummer also. So they kind of do some live drumming and drum machines mixed in. I do believe. Yeah, because it said that they had gone through when I was looking at their you know current member, past member sort of thing that 
they have over on uh, on Wikipedia, and it was listing, you know, who played on what record and and that kind of stuff. And it looked like they had gone through more than one drummer because on this record, yes. I don't think I think is it Jason Payne that was one of the drummers at some point. I think I'm yes, not... he was at some point. Yes, okay. And this came out in September of 91, actually September 30th. That's roughly the same time period as Nirvana's Nevermind. It might, have, it might be a week off, or it might have been the same week as, as when this came out. Um, it was produced by Alan Wilder from Depeche Mode, as mm-hmm. well as Flood. His name is Mike Ellis, but he goes by Flood. Let's get into some comments that we got over on our Patreon page. So... Ian Wobble says, in the late 90s in Perth, Australia, you could get this for $2 brand new in every bargain bin shop. <laughs> I Everyone I knew owned a copy. I don't know if the label expected it to be a big seller, and obviously it failed. So in the bargain bin it goes. And then Darren Leach said, this was released one week after Nirvana's Nevermind. Okay, that answers the question right there. I see why this disappeared without a trace. I could hardly listen to all the tracks due to his vocal style. And then he he commented on his vote, which we'll get to uh, get to later. So I don't think that in terms of uh, the release time, I mean, obviously, they there's no correlation with Nirvana in terms of, you know, stylistically or anything like that. So it just happened to come out at the same time as a juggernaut album. And I, I didn't mention. So this came out in Geffen on Geffen MCA in the United States and then Mute Records in the UK. Jay, I'm going to ask you. Tell me one thing you liked about Ebhead by Nights or Ebb. I was uh, pleasantly surprised at how melodic it, it is for industrial. I, uh, coming in just with the band name and the album cover, it looks like it's going to be, you know, maybe a little harder edged or like difficult, maybe more in the skinny puppy vein. But I found it pretty inter- interesting from a almost pop songwriting standpoint. You know, uh, the songs are you know, pretty well structured. Uh, they all got choruses. Um, I think this, the vocals are really, uh, make them different. You know, it's kind of a, at times he almost sounds like Alice Cooper-ish, um, you know, really emotive, a lot of inflection and melodic, but you know, under it musically, yeah, it's a lot of drum machines and sequencing and stuff and keyboards and at times even like 80 sounding, you know, beats and stuff. But, um, I was pleasantly surprised about how all comes together, you know, is really well-crafted pop songs. And it was kind of funny. I mean, the, the genre, when I look at it on Apple music, at least is pop. So I shouldn't have been Interesting. Uh, that take that, that surprised, <laughs> I suppose. But, um, yeah, no, I, I was really, uh, I was drawn in uh, a lot by the vocals. You know, I, I guess when I think of industrial, I don't always think of, you know, compelling vocals other than maybe nine inch nails, you know, a lot of, other industrial stuff that I've heard in my life is more is is less about it's more about attitude and energy and not necessarily melody. So yeah, I was kind of pulled in um, and found that familiar enough that you know I could kind of then be pulled into the songs and start listening to some of the production stuff, which is really also pretty interesting. Um, you know, it's I think the last thing I'll mention is that on that note is that even though it's it's a lot of programming it's very dynamic. Like there's a lot of cool changes and layering and they don't, you know, my pet peeve about the genre 
tends to be that you'll have songs where it's just unchanging. Like it'll just be a pounding drum beat for five minutes and they don't do that. Like they are constantly pulling things in and out and, you know, changing things up and out to keep me interested. So just from a production standpoint, I thought, you know, for this type of music, it was um, really well done. And at least for me, for my kind of tastes and sensibilities worked pretty well um, from a production standpoint too. So yeah, those are the two things that I was really impressed with. I want to piggyback on something you said about, you know, in terms of where they're, they're coming from sonically, I definitely heard the Depeche Mode influence on this record. Like I give to you the music in that song could be a, a Depeche Mode song from like Black Celebration or that era of Depeche Mode, like pre-Violator. Same thing with like Ascend. Like those sound like very classic 80s sounding. Just whatever synth choices, I don't know what they're doing exactly, uh, but there's just like little touches. And I know it's Alan Wilder from, you know, Depeche Mode assisting with the production. So that, I mean, that has to rub off a little bit. Uh, and obviously Depeche Mode is just a huge uh, band. I mean, they are in some ways, you know, they started it, this band started in the 80s. So, they are in some ways contemporaries of Depeche Mode. Um, and then there's the stuff that sounds a little bit more, you know, a modern that has that Nine Inch Nails, what would be pretty only like pretty hate machine sounding stuff. But I think the, the what worked best was the, like you said, that these are really like well-constructed songs. There are choruses. Almost all of them have a really good hook. Uh, Lakeside Drive, especially. It's just that just hook just, sticks with you.
um, DJ VD and and a couple other ones that they just reasons. I mean, uh, the front end of the record especially is really tight in terms of. I guess you'd be traditional song structures with verses and choruses and and then they just do a really good job like you said with the dynamics of playing around and and also adding, you know, just interesting touches to the songs that differentiate them. So like I give to you has this like trill uh I'm pretty I'm sure it's a keyboard but it's a it's a orchestral string part during the the choruses you know and it's, it's just it's like a stabbing kind of yeah high tension yeah and it just it bring yeah it brings a little bit of tension to that song yep whereas like lakeside drive is all propulsion yep. and um yeah there's just a good amount of variety on uh, a lot of the tracks, like I said, especially in the first half, that are are just really strong. So, Josh, you mentioned this as being sort of an underrated record in in their catalog. Um, what works best for you that you know maybe people don't recognize with this record? For me, I think it's a lot. Of, you know what you had mentioned that I feel like these are more fully realized pop songs than on their couple previous records because like I said for most people the common the big favorite from this group is their first commercially released album um uh, that total age and that's that one is in in a certain sense I actually call it the rain and blood of EBM and that the whole album basically sounds the same but it's a good enough sound that you don't mind it but <laughs> That's, but that's a very different kind of sound. And also the vocals were, I think it's a very strong vocal performance in there, but very different. Like it's just straight up shouting. It's a, it's one of the angriest dance albums you will ever hear. Put it to you that way. Interesting. And then they just kind of shifted from there to going, getting more musical, I guess, you, as they themselves put it over time. And that's something that a lot of the industrial purists don't like in particular, you know, the very Depeche Mode sounding stuff. And then, you know, and like Godhead in particular, like that song was kind of seen as a big sellout attempt within the, you know, the industrial purist side of things, because there's a lot of people who do not take kindly to guitars in that world. personally actually 
What I enjoyed is some of the really bizarre lyrics at times, interesting lyrics, but we will, we might get to that a little bit later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely some interesting lyrics, uh, on this record. Um, it seemed like it was meant to push the envelope with regards to, uh, especially. So like the album cover has a, what would be like a, you know, like a hype sticker essentially built into the album cover. It says includes family man remixed version. So it's clearly like pointing you to that song as, as, but if you listen to the lyrics of that song, that can't be a single. I can't, I can't imagine based on some of the lyrics that are in there, um, that it would be in terms of radio play. Was there a radio single for this album? Actually, I will let you know. Um, there are two songs off this album that broke into the modern rock charts and family man was one of them. Really? I give to you was the other, which I imagine you'd probably expect that one a lot more, but yeah, I thought Lakeside drive would have been one, but that was not a single at all, actually. Uh, but yeah, Family Man was it's probably their best known song from this album, to be honest. It's I, I imagine they 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 that and Godhead were both uh, pretty heavily edited for the single versions. I would have to think so, because there are the I mean, the the chorus of the song, I, it's just. Yep, you, it's not possible that that chorus <laughs> would be played on the radio. So. um Uh, one of the other things that uh, I, I think that w- works best for me, because this is, you know, surprisingly, I, I guess not surprisingly, because the start of the era of like, transition from from albums to CDs, this is a 44 minute record. It's like right at that vinyl limit is that it's a tight record. Whereas I think if this came out like three years later or two years later, this would this might have gotten like bloated and it might have turned into a 55 60 minute record but it seemed like they were like there's a conscious effort to rein in these songs and and keep them pretty tight which i don't necessarily always associate with um electronic or or edm or whatever i think of them as having longer tunes so that was something that i i thought worked well in their favor because it made the songs punchier i guess i'd say like they're in you know a lot of them are are three let's say in the three and a half to four minute range or to four and a half minute range and then there's a couple that are a little bit longer and they all kind of work individually and they all have their own like i also think appreciated that they they really did a good job of varying the instrumentation and sounds on each of the songs which i guess you know it's interesting like when i think about rock bands and the and the sort of leeway that there doesn't have to be a lot of differentiation in the music there might be in terms of like what notes are played but you know you look for a consistency in guitar tone and and bass tone and and if those things aren't consistent across a rock record that actually becomes a kind of a an odd thing that, that happens. Like you go, Oh, well, this song was clearly produced at a different point, 
than this song. But for a uh, electronic record, industrial, however you want to categorize it, it's like you're looking for there to be differentiation. I want a different keyboard sound on this record or on this song from this song, or I want different percussion sounds and stuff like that. And there's a uniformity to this record, but there's also a lot of variation from song to song, which makes it a an interesting overall record in terms of it actually being an album instead of just a you know a collection of sort of dance tracks or what have you. Jay, any uh, additional thoughts on what you liked? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, just that build on the point you just made. You know, when you're electronic music is fundamentally you're using machines which are systematic and the same by definition. So I think to make them more human, at least for me, I'm looking for things that are, I'm looking for variety. I'm looking for dynamics. I'm looking for change to basically turn the the machine into something that like feels analog so that, you know, it has like a more human connection to it. So I think they do that really well. I mean, Depeche Mode is another band that does that well. Nine Inch Nails does that well, but there's a lot of, you know, I, I would say like Ministry doesn't always do that well for me, um, for example. So that part of the record, I think, is uh, super important. Just the the time they put into, you know, how they're layering things, how they're pull, bringing things in and pulling them out, how they're using vocals. You know, there's a lot of cool vocal stuff on here, not yeah. just the lead vocal, but background vocals as well. Mm. So you're hearing human voices. You know, he does some spoken things. There's, you know, a variety of different singing styles, you know, all those little things kind of add up. Um, there's piano parts, you know, it, it all adds up to just, you know, kind of breaking through that machine like kind of sterile thing that you can get uh, if you don't put in the extra work. You mentioned about the vocals. There was a I think it's in Trigger Happy. There's almost like rapping going on. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yes. That to me was like. I'm not sure I'm on board with that. That was the only time because he doesn't have like a he's not a belter in terms of vocal. He actually in, in some ways he reminded me of um, Scott McCloud from Girls Against Boys where it's all about like attitude with his vocal delivery as opposed to and I think the Alice Cooper one is also a good comparison in a weird way that it's it's yeah. about this attitude that he's delivering. But man, I did not like it when he went into this speaking rapping part, like that just threw me off as far as what I liked going on in, in the other songs. So what didn't work for you, Jay? Uh, I'm with you on that. DJ VD is another song where they, it's more of like a, I guess a beastie boys delivery (laughs) at Mm. times, Um, which I'm okay with, but yeah, I don't love trigger happy. You know, I don't love the, um, some of the spoken word stuff. I like, I'm fine with it a little bit, but it's not my favorite part of the record. And there's just some, there's a couple songs like time is a little unfocused. You know, there's a couple other tracks or parts where, you know, things get a little bit off the rails. I don't love family, man. I get what they're trying to do. Like, I, I feel like I understand, like to me, I, when I hear that, I hear like a take on the arithmetic missionary man it has that kind of like soulful, big chorus, kind of thing you know their own spin on it 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 just feels a little dumb like it doesn't feel as sophisticated as some of the other stuff on the record Uh, 
So I, I'm actually not a fan of that song. I think if the rest of the record was like that, I would probably not like it uh, as much as I do. So there's some missteps here and there, um, either material wise experiments that, that kind of for me didn't pan out. But, you know, it's, I think it's more of a material, you know, song oriented flaws, if anything else. What about for you, Josh? Are there any missteps for you on this record? Yes, um, I'm with you in some of the tracks, you know, being a little unfocused. I'm actually with you in terms of finding Family Man a little overrated, if anything. Um, and also totally with you on Trigger Happy. Uh, it was a Sugar Sweetened DJVD, like that little stretch there. That's kind of, that doesn't really pull me in either. You know, those tracks and, you know, time, kind of that middle stretch of the album is where it it drags down a little bit for me personally, but that's just me. Interesting. I like the music to sugar sweet. Yeah. I think it, it's got that dark industrial EBM sound that I, that I like and it's not, it's, I get maybe it must be the, the vocal. It just doesn't match up exactly to what the music sounds like. So yeah. I'm clear. Cause I, I, I tend to like cross my genres what is the differentiation between, or is there a differentiation between EBM and, and industrial? Yes. Um, EBM is kind of a sort of a subgenre of industrial. Okay. And that's meant to be like the more dance, dance friendly side of it. And with like a standard kind of like uniform unchanging beat is kind of a defining characteristic of it. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I feel like a lot of this, there's, they do a lot of, dynamic with the beat in terms of introducing you know they might be not a slower tempo because it, it tends to be the same tempo but just like maybe cutting from half time to regular time and i don't it's it's not to me like listening to you know a record by like the orb or something like that where it's it's much more consistent along for like seven eight minutes with one right. one beat and there might be like some ebb and flow in the in the music but the beat tends to stay you keep that like four on the floor pulse. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you make a good point because yeah, like by this, by the time of this album, like it's, they're not really considered EBM anymore by this point. Okay. Like this doesn't reflect that. Like I said, that total age is the album you want to listen to. If you want to know what EBM sounds like, there you go. Okay. So this comes out in 91, right. same period as, as Nirvana's Nevermind. I can imagine that if you go to the store and you see this record and you see Nirvana, you're probably picking up the Nirvana based on what's going on. But did this, is this a successful record in their catalog or like, cause a couple of the people mentioned about seeing a lot of them in the bargain bins and it, it did come out on a major label. So I'm, I would imagine there was a push behind it, but do you know anything about whether this was successful for them or whether it was, cause I know they only did one more record than they broke up for like, a, you know, a while. This record, um, it was kind of seen as a disappointment for them. If you look at the peak chart positions now, what's interesting is it actually, I guess it might have sold better than some of the previous ones because it actually did break into the Billboard chart. Like in the, it, it barely broke the top 150 in the Billboard album chart, but none of their previous albums had ever done that at all in the US. So there gotcha. is a bit there, but I also imagine that it probably had a bigger budget behind it with promotion and such. Cause this was, they, they put a pretty, pretty big push behind this album. And I think it were like, felt like a disappointment from that perspective. 
that they didn't get really big hits off of that. Like I said, I mean, they had, you know, a couple songs that were in like the top 30 on the modern rock charts. And that was their peak with this. Well, it, it was clear that they were pushing a different direction because if you just look at the album covers yes. from the they're all very sterile like they're all in the vein of like new order album covers just like text and color and and that's it when i looked at like showtime you know showtime's like orange and black rectangles <laughs> with with the words nights are up showtime and then when you go back to belief that's just a square with <laughs> So they, and so comparatively, this is such a bright album cover, and they're on it, and it's it's clearly playing with like it almost has this. Um, I want to say Peter Max, is that right? Is that the guy who would play with like Jay Urine Design and No Art? Do you know who Peter Max is? I know who Peter Max is. Yes. Didn't he play with like really commercial looking designs and stuff, and and have like I'm trying to think if that's the guy. Super bright and graphic. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. you could say. This would be a... Yeah, you know, Peter Max. The U- big UPC code, too, kind of gives it a clear... To me, a clear statement of, like, this is a product. <laughs> we are making a commercial product. Right, yeah. Here's the UPC's code to scan it. And to your point about, like, the calling out, like, what the single was and, like, the hype sticker approach, like, it feels very purposeful that this is a departure in some way. Right. But I don't know that, you know, based on what was going on in 91 in the United States, this had if if Nirvana had not broken, I I don't know what if this would have done anything different. I mean, you know, he had Nirvana or not Nirvana. He had Depeche Mode coming off two pretty big records and Mm -hmm. New Order was a big deal. So there I mean, there's definitely a market in the United States for music of a an electronic sound. That's just those are just the big ones. I was thinking when I listened to this, I didn't check the year on it and I kind of heard it as again, the closest uh, comparison I had was nine inch nails. So like I could very well, this felt like a maybe more mid nineties or late nineties record that would be made like in response to them having commercial success. That was the kind of the way I was thinking about it. So to know it came out kind of earlier before they really broke big is interesting so, to me. Like it feels ahead of its time then if they no I guess they don't have a good handle. I know Pretty Hate Machine was 89. Right. So I, I know it was big in some parts and it was like on MTV and stuff like that, but I don't know if that reached the same I, I'd have to look at the numbers, but as far I, I as of, with I think of this downward spiral as being the big record. The breakthrough? Me. Okay. Well, obviously I mean that has a ton of right. you know, closer and hurt. Like, and, Pretty Hate Machine was still like, you know, there were a couple kids in high school that liked it, but for the most part, you know, most people didn't know what it was. It wasn't until like Downward Spiral spiral that they became massive. Okay, gotcha. I mean, that's that's true in a way, although it was starting even before then. I mean, Broken got them, you know, a, a Grammy nomination at least. Um and I mean, Head, Head Like a Hole was a fairly big hit, at least within the MTV sphere. So there was that. I mean, the thing is that Pretty Hate, for being considered an industrial record, Pretty Hate Machine was huge within that world because, like, you know, a, a frontline assembly being able to sell 40,000 records in 1992 was seen as a massive achievement. 
for that world. So even Pretty Hate Machines kind of like on another stratosphere. Like even like like Ministry was the only other one like in that league before that. Yeah. Here's the here's the the, the way to determine if they were popular or not. Was a Pretty Hate Machine video on Beavis and Butthead in the early 90s? <laughs> it was actually. There you go. <laughs> like a whole was was on there. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> and actually, to speak of Beavis and Butthead, that's probably the main thing that people know this album for anymore, um, at least in the U.S. Um, it's a it, it's kind of a classic moment there. Specifically, uh, they played the video for Godhead and and at the by the end of the song, they're just like chanting along like Butthead. To, to the last <laughs> bit at the end every time. And that's a bit that I find a lot of people remember that. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Think about the fact that there used to be a television show on a major network that was allowed to mock the the artists who were popular, or, or not even necessarily popular, but were backed by major labels. Like, can you imagine a major label today, the amount of money they have to invest in artists to get them over the hump? Dude, they were just following the uh, NME formula. Build them up and tear them down. It's like a factory. Just send us the next batch. I, I know, but to ha- but it's <laughs> that's just crazy that that ever was allowed to exist. Let's talk about our overall ratings, and then we will get to the poll over at Patreon.com for our patrons who voted on this record. Jay, where do you land? Were the album better EP or decent single? I'm in a worthy album. It's only 44 minutes. You know, I, I think there's one or two songs in here I would, you know, maybe skip. But uh, I like this quite a bit. I think it's, like I said, of this genre, you know, one of the records I would pull out. I'm also just impressed by, like, uh, the fact that there's so little guitar on it or, like, almost none. So, and it still rocks. <laughs> so, you know, it's it feels like to me like a pop hard rock record, even though there's no guitars on it, which is really interesting. So, hmm. yeah, I dig it. I agree with you. I would only really, I think two songs I would, I would just immediately drop, which would be the last two trigger happy and family man. Uh, I'm, I'm good with everything else. Not everything is like, I think the first three songs are the th- the three best songs on the record. And, yeah there are a lot of good ones after that. Uh, so I'm at a worthy album as well. Josh? This is going to be interesting because I'm the one who first nominated this, but I'm going to go better EP here. What? Funny enough. That has never <laughs> happened. <laughs> never happened. It's you have first. broken a barrier. This is like a, <laughs> a one taking down a 16 in the, in the, when we used to watch basketball in March, bringing it back to the beginning of the episode. This is unheard of. Wow. Tell us, what what are your song choices for your EP? Okay. My main song choices, um, let's see. Definitely Reasons and I Give to You, those two for sure, and those two, Ascend, Godhead, and, uh, you know, Lakeside Drive, and then, you know, Family Man's kind of borderline. So... I'm just I'm not as high on some of those middle tracks as gotcha. you guys are, it seems. So, yeah. Well, you know, I, I agree that record starts strong and it's at least kind of fizzles until about ascend. And then yeah, it's definitely to me, the, the beginning of the records, the strongest. Yeah. Well, 
we've broken new ground here. That's uh, definitely not was not expecting that. So, you know, I looked at the poll and the poll came in uh, 67% better EP and 33% decent single. So apparently you were in the 67% in the voting. So I uh, was not expecting that. I, I guess when I didn't see a worthy album, I should have guessed <laughs> that where we were heading. But Jay and I liked it better. So there you go. What can we uh, what can we do to uh, convince people that this is worth a worthy album? I don't know. They'll have to give it a listen themselves, which uh, I don't know if people know this, but anytime a record is on Spotify, we link to it on our website. So you can easily uh, check out the album that we're talking about. And then we also try to create playlists for all of our roundtable episodes when they're relevant. So like our recent REM Roundtable has a playlist of all REM uh, 90s music that you can go check out. Or when we do our albums of 1990, we we pick out songs and put them into a playlist. So just a little extra stuff for you to check out. And also, including extra stuff, we also have our box newsletter going out now. So if you enjoy that, feel free to sub- – where did they subscribe to that, Jay? Uh, you can just go to our site. There's a banner at the top that says get our newsletter. Yes. And you can listen to me do uh, one-minute reviews, which is my attention threshold for for doing things. <laughs> it's about one minute. <laughs> uh, Josh, thanks for bringing to this this to us. This was fun. We always enjoy your your selections. We're we're starting to notice a trend with with folks, and you are definitely uh, keeping us on our toes as far as what we are not normally consuming. So greatly appreciated, and uh, <laughs> thanks for coming back. Oh. I'm uh, very glad to be on always with you guys, and I'm very, very glad I get to get to be a model breaker for y'all in more ways than one sometimes, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Want to remind folks, Patreon is where they can go to join the union. It's as little as two bucks a month. Helps us keep the uh, the bills paid. And, of course, you get a, uh, a union sticker when you join, and, and if you join us at a higher level, there's T-shirts and various fun activities that we provide i made it sound like an amusement park no it's uh (laughs) polls and you get to we've got our our 80s poll just concluded so we'll be voting on it or we'll be not voting we'll be uh recording our 80s episode for april coming up soon and more roundtables coming up as well and if you want to leave some feedback please head on over to apple podcasts to leave some feedback for us. We'd greatly appreciate your positive words to help us overtake all of the NPR podcasts in the rankings. That'll only take a couple of years for us to do that. If every single person leaves a review, who's ahead of us, Jay, is that Ira glass son of a bitch still ahead of us? <laughs> I have to check again. Probably. Uh, I, I like you say we take down NPR. <laughs> no good bastards. A juggernaut of public radio. Yeah. Big radios <laughs> standing in our way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com 
where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. 